we haven't even talked about the the thing that I assumed the intro would be about. The the vice presidential debate. I was gonna talk. <laughs> well, you know, we only release every like two weeks or so, so I was actually gonna, gonna talk about how Trump has COVID. But I guess that's old news already. That is 100% old news. Well, the, he... vi- the vice presidential debate was fucking disaster. What is there even to say about no, it? No, that's the thing. That's the thing. This is what all like neoliberals have been hoping for. Two people hopelessly avoiding questions and talking to each other very politely and not interrupting each other as much as... Uh, Trump and Biden. Did. I don't know, dude. Fucking Pence was pretty horrible. This is it. like the normal, the normal politics I know. that people want to get back to. That's what. And this, it's still that shitty. This vice presidential debate actually revealed something to me that I, 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 I think we'd all kind of known, but it was just like the best, the best like pulling of the veil away, which is that like it actually reveals to us how shitty our politics have always been like it's not even that much worse it's just worse it's just bad in ways that make it more obvious how bad it's always been because like because like kamala and pence like this is what debates used to be like and now we're like this is so fucking terrible it's like i feel like this is just what debates have always been like yes this is boring nobody's yelling at each other and nobody's being uh using racist dog whistles i mean i mean sucks i mean the bits i mean the bits where pence was like i'm not gonna answer that question i'm gonna answer a different question and then went and did it and never answered the actual question is like if i didn't fucking hate him so much i would like be joking about how that's a complete chad move and it unironically (laughs) is like a complete chad move um but i just can't i can't I stand by my philosophy is that under no circumstances do you have to give it to them? Do you have to hand it to them? Um, so I won't. You don't have to. That's okay. But, but and you know, it's kind of it's kind of nice that like the fly is like the main thing that people are reacting to and talking about because frankly, like Pence did kind of bowl over her in a lot of that debate. I mean, I think the thing we're missing most here is that I think Pence was in just really unfamiliar territory, you know? He was um, he was on stage talking to a woman that wasn't his wife for like an hour and a half. <laughs> like, and he's famously against that. Did you read that Onion article or at least see the headline? That was like, that was like Mike Pence instinctually directs all, all answers to kamala harris's husband in the audience <laughs> oh oh, oh. I, I laugh that's really sad that's that's so true though he he did speak over her a lot that that did get me kind of tight like yeah fucking <laughs> oh my God. i feel like these how all our intros go and like, like we talk we talk about recent events just, and we just go oh god we're just, fucked aren't we yeah, I love these. Yeah. I love these court packing questions because it's 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 the it's the revert. It's like the it's like the perfect mirror of the of constantly asking Trump if he's going to like commit to a peaceful transition of power because it's like I feel like the idea is like to get them on record not being straightforward about their intentions. But what's really happening is that you're just normalizing the idea that they have the choice. And, like, Democrats on the whole are pretty on board with packing the court at this point. Even, like, moderate Democrats, as far as I can see. Like, if Joe Biden was like, we're going to add 
four justices to the court like i think he would receive pretty broad support from the democratic base for that i mean he won't but but i would love to be proved wrong i mean that would be that would be incredible i i mean and it would have to be four you can't add you can't add two because that, that wouldn't even give you the majority Oh God! Yeah, I, I was confused for a second there. Then I realized the, the the abysmal state we're in. But like as we as we both know, there's no um, there's no guarantee that just because a large amount of his base supports yeah. that Joe Biden will agree to something. True. I do think I th- I think that I think that you probably I think he's probably not going to pack the court at all. Like under no circumstance, if if they can block Amy Coney Barrett from being. Um, from being affirmed before um it's like too late if they can like stop her from being on the bench and we end up with a 5-4 then i i i doubt we'll see a uh, a packing i think it's only in the event that we end up with a 6-3 that there's a chance of it yeah trump could die and amy coney barrett will still likely be appointed as a supreme court justice Fingers I don't know. Crossed. We'll see. I'm hoping. We'll see because I, the... I can't wait till Trump. Do you realize like... how? <laughs> Do you realize how incredible of a day that's going to be? Okay, I hate that I'm saying this. I'm gonna. Like, I'm gonna bleep out. Twitter is gonna go off. I'm gonna bleep Twitter. Twitter. I'm gonna bleep. I'm gonna out take the day off of work. Trump. To... You're gonna say it's gonna. It's gonna sound like I can't wait until bleep. <laughs> <laughs> you know you can get banned on Twitter for saying that um, you want Trump to die. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not gonna fuck with that. I'm. I'm gonna. I'm gonna keep it nice and clean on that regard. I mean, I'm taking care of the posting because, quite frankly, COVID doesn't care what I think anyway. That's true. Uh, All right. Do you want to start talking about the episode? I'm gonna take Linus and put him outside because he's. Being yeah, noisy. and then you can come back. Yeah, we can start talking about the episode. Okay, great. I know, I know I've said this to you over text already in, in, in the lead up to this, but I fucking hate talking about the Soviet Union. <laughs> I absolutely, you know what it's like? It's like talking about Israel where like you're looking well, at I this. I love talking about Israel. No, I fucking hate it. Cause you're, cause you're looking at this thing and you're like, wow, there's a lot of things here that, uh, that, that could really do with some good faith criticism. You know, there's a lot of really bad stuff going on. And then, and then some like right wing dipshit is putting so much effort into propagandizing and fear-mongering about this thing to the point because they have an agenda that goes beyond just criticizing the actual like material state of the thing that they're looking at of the Soviet Union or of Israel and they're trying to like because because like when right-wingers criticize the Soviet Union they're not like trying to point out specific flaws with like the state they want to put any kind of like collectivized working class oriented politics outside the realm of consideration and that's why you end up with these absurd like numbers of like oh a hundred million people died over the course of the soviet union's life and it's like that is like the soviet union at its birth had 150 million people living it and at its death 300 million people in it 
and they 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 had 100 million non like that's just obviously absurd but and, and like when you when you actually like look at the numbers you're, you're you know you're, you're talking about uh death figures that are still in the fucking millions still in the millions and in any other circumstance like pointing out that that like that like stalin is responsible for three million deaths sounds like you are saying a bad thing about him but in the context of like literally of like reducing that by like reducing 100 billion by 97 percent to get to that three million figure it looks like you're sucking him off saying (laughs) saying three million people died like i just can't even have like a straightforward fucking conversation about and it's the thing with and it's yeah it, it reminds me of how what it's like to talk about israel where it's like where it's like hey i think that like these orthodox jewish settlements in the west bank are bad but there's a guy next to you who is who is like who who is like yeah like the protocols of the elders of Zion QAnon fucking shit. I actually have no idea how QAnon feels about Israel because it can always it's always evangelicals are complicated about. You can't tell. That's the thing. You can't tell how QAnon feels about everything because everything is interpreted from these incredibly vague like one sentence uh, air quotes drops. Yeah, that people. Oh my god, watching people like like pick apart like uh Trump tweets to try and turn them into like QAnon, like align them to QAnon drops is fucking inc- it's literally like English algebra that has no rules and makes no sense. It's in- in- incredible the length of mental gymnastics people go to. It's also very sad. Have you, know, you have but- have you watched uh, Dan Olson uh, folding ideas uh, documentary on uh, Flat Earth and QAnon? Oh, I didn't know that Flat Earth and QAnon were aligned. Oh, of course they are. Um, that's like the the central thesis of it, it's called In Search of a Flat Earth, and it's 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 the central thesis of it is basically that Flat Earth is kind of waning in popularity because the thing that Flat Earth used to do for people is now doing is now being done by QAnon, which is basically just provide a worldview that gives you free reign to do right-wing authoritarianism with no like filter and no like restrictions i think no the thing that really gave q i think qanon is so much more powerful than flat earth by a long oh by by by, it's a it's probably the most successful conspiracy movement in u.s history can we get a fuck jim watkins in the chat thank you (laughs) Jim, Wa- Jim and Ron Watkins. Do we even know? Do I, I we even know that Jim Watkins is Q? Because we, we, there are there is a that new podcast been... coming out by Jake Hanrahan, the host of Popular I Front. I'm about familiar that. with Jake. I just stood out and I'm super excited about it. Uh, that that, right. that was that was a plug for um, something we have nothing to do with, but I'm super excited about it because right. he's a really smart guy. He's very hardworking. But Jake Hanrahan, you said is very yeah. good looking. Uh, hard working, but oh, I, I, okay. I don't know what he looks like, but I imagine, you know, he is, he does seem like a leftist, so I'm assuming he's handsome. He's, yeah, you know, it's, it's tough to tell. Okay. Here's the thing about anarchists, right? Is I feel like there's two, <laughs> I feel like there's two kinds of anarchists. There's, there's like, there's like CNTFAI, like fucking anarchists. There's, or, or, or like, like Zabatistas or, and, and shit like that. Like, like anarchists like smash the state blow shit up you know to the extent that you need to like 
take down like oppressive institutions stuff like that and then there's anarchists that are basically just sock dems who like use anarchist theory to as like a cudgel against um like authoritarian communists but but doesn't really but is like not really meaningfully anti-state even in like their political advocacy because it's not like thought of as an immediate um as like as like an immediate goal it's like a later goal maybe if we can do this first these first things first but it's like once you're going oh well we need to do other things first before we can smash the state like i feel like you're kind of betraying the basic anarchist principle that transitory states are a dead end yeah that's unfortunate um but yeah but i feel like that like 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 is noam chomsky really an anarchist or is noam chomsky a democratic socialist no noam chomsky is um seems to be a consistent proponent of electoralism so i can't really say he's any flavor of anarchist yeah and it's like that's fine like we don't have to be we don't all have to be anarchists i'm certainly not an anarchist yeah i'm i'm really not i i 100 percent since day one anti-cop yeah (laughs) i don't really identify twisted i think that i don't really identify fully with either of like the really traditional like red or black like lines i i I, I'm, i'm generally a fan of like the trend of democratic socialism and stuff like that like the idea of like a roughly liberal state with socialist economic relations the use of like the nationalization of of parts of industry and the organization of the other parts uh in terms of co-ops depending on depending on the industry you know generally uh Mm. with just nationalized natural resources yeah yeah not yeah not resource extraction isps like internet service energy Mm -hmm um the building of infrastructure most of the time you know uh food can be a little bit complicated because some food is people don't realize that internet is a human right internet should be a human right in this day and age yeah no one talks about that shit mostly because they're so obsessed with dumb shit like healthcare. (laughs) (laughs) you know those things are connected those things are connected especially especially in the age of covid like if you don't have internet then it can be harder to see your doctor because people are doing like remote visits and stuff like that so it's all connected dude we gotta stop we gotta start this fucking episode (laughs) take control of the recording now and i'm going to start and i'm gonna start talking about i'm three-fourths of the way through this tall boy i'm gonna start talking about intro. reds hit it so big thank you to reddit user splizzy29 for <laughs> what this is this is a reddit Sorry. it's a normal reddit it's, name. It's just, it sounds like um, glizzy and that makes me laugh yeah big big thank you splizzy for uh recommending us black shirts and reds to we to read for this current episode of we read theory this one um cuts a little bit against uh my personal beliefs a little bit and calls me out quite a bit um i don't challenging fully... yourself is good though. yeah yeah this i don't is, this is growth mark uh yeah yeah i i i you know it's all it's all in the script i i talk about where i disagree with michael parenti but uh i did i did actually learn a lot from this book that has helped me to think about things a little bit more clearly even if i don't 100 percent agree with his perspective um although i think we agree more than we don't honestly because i i think that 
we'll, we'll, we'll get into it. But Mark, isn't that what leftism is all about? Infighting? Hating people you slightly disagree with? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. okay. We never introed. Like the This Is We Read Theory. Should yeah, we you're do right. That? Um, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't no, no, sure no, no, if like no, no, we're going to no, do no, it later. No, 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 no. You're, 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 you're true. Welcome to We Read Theory, the podcast where we read theory so you do not have to. My name is Mark. And I am Alex, as I always have been. And, you know, we've talked, <laughs> we talked about it already, uh, but... Uh, we are reading Michael Parenti's Black Shirts and Reds. Uh, let's get started. Cool, cool, cool. Michael Parenti's goal with Black Shirts and Reds is to recontextualize our understanding of communism in the 20th century. Communists, and particularly the Soviet Union, have been the subject of so much propaganda in the West that their mere mention often warrants a negative emotional reaction in many, if not most, Americans that rivals or even surpasses Nazi Germany. The evil Soviets are always placed in opposition to an imperfect but ultimately good capitalist West. What Blackshirts and Reds does is challenge this narrative from both ends. On the Soviet end, Parenti seeks to place many of the worst aspects of communist society in their proper context, as the results of flawed leaders in difficult times making often ruthless decisions, rather than as the results of pure evil or rank idiocy. On the Western end, Parenti is merciless in his criticism of the capitalist system of the inequality it creates, and the imperialism it necessitates. What we basically have is a reversal of the narrative we're used to, with an evil, bloodthirsty West, and an imperfect, but ultimately, you know, going for being good, Soviet Union. With a structure like this, it's easy to walk away from black shirts and reds, thinking Parenti wants you to think about the Soviet Union as uncritically as we Americans tend to think about our own country. I don't like to think Parenti is interested in doing this, though, but I have to admit that I'm projecting onto him a bit here. The way I think about the Soviet Union is it's like an old race car with some experimental design features that lost its big race, and now it sits in the dump. And for those of us who believe in the experiment at like a fundamental level, it's tempting to think we can just build it back up like it was before and give it another go. But we know this is a mistake. The race has been run, and the Soviet Union lost. On the other hand, it's also tempting to say we should scrap the whole thing. The capitalist car won, so clearly it must be better. It must be made from better parts. But we know this is a mistake too. If we abandon past failures completely, then we implicitly accept the neoliberal narrative that there is no alternative. That the growing inequality, the erosion of our communities, the commodification of every human experience, and the suicidal destruction of our environment are all just things we have to live and die with. Really quick, like... Off the jump, as is tradition, I have not read Black Shirts and Reds. Yeah. But off the jump, this sounds to me like the centrist uh, standpoint of I can criticize both sides. Therefore, I am, you know, intellectually ascended. Is it that? No, Parenti is the, 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 if you take Black Shirts and Reds at its face value, then it is, it is very much bloodthirsty evil western capitalists and highly flawed but ultimately good uh soviets i'm liking this already let's go um and and yeah like like i said like i'm maybe a little bit well let's <sighs> i hate talking about the soviet <laughs> i have because uh, my feelings about it are so complicated um 
And so what does a good engineer do? They take their broken machine and they take it apart. Which parts failed? Which parts worked as expected? Which parts actually exceeded those expectations? If this is the way you want to think about the Soviet Union, then Black Shirts and Reds is a really good place to start. It's a good book to help you get into the mindset of taking the Soviet Union seriously as a political project, which most Americans are not really accustomed to doing. I do advise that if you're planning on reading this book that you do so with the intention of investigating some of the claims made in it, as it often goes unsighted in areas that I felt needed citations. Not to say that everything that Parenti says is wrong, it's just that when you go and look into it, you might find that he's right in some places or he's maybe oversimplifying things in other places. Uh, for example, there's this section in which Parenti lists off the casualties from a number of American military actions in the 20th century. And while the Vietnam War and various acts of regime change in Africa and Latin America do represent major atrocities committed by the United States, Parenti's handling of them hides the fact that the process of determining casualties is often rather messy and rarely results in a single clean number. And I don't say this to suggest that these were not the crimes Parenti says they were. For all I know, the numbers could be higher in truth. But the point is that I don't know where he's getting his numbers from sometimes, and that makes it tough to feel like I could actually take these numbers into a debate, into like a serious setting. And I, but you know, without checking them first, at least. With all that said, like there's, yeah. I feel like to compare capitalism and communism as he's doing solely in a quantitative way as a number of deaths that resulted from it is a way oversimplification. It's not. Well, that's just that's just one segment of the book. He's he he he's he's pretty comprehensive, I would say. And with all that said, yeah, no, that is fair. But also, as long as we're on the subject, guess how many people in communist Vietnam have died from the coronavirus? Just take a guess. It's it's zero, right? It's 35 35, people. okay. 30 fucking five. And in Cuba, it's like 120 people. 120. I know, I know. How fucking insane is that? I mean, you don't even, you don't have to be communist though, because like, I don't, like. Oh no, I'm just saying. Because like, like Hong Kong. These communist countries and, are, in, in, in the South, Western yeah. public education school thought, fucking awful, horrible, yeah. totalitarian places mm-hmm. where there is statistically less homelessness and poverty coincidentally just out of nowhere just saying (laughs) (laughs) with all that said parenti is doing important work here he's encouraging us to investigate complicated parts of history that have been simplified in american canon he's identifying and deconstructing the double standards we too often apply to america's enemies in many ways he's actually doing very similar work to what noam chomsky is famous for which is a bit ironic considering parenti's apparent burning hatred for the man and that's basically all the bets I need to hedge before going into this. So let's let's get into the actual text of Black Shirts and Reds. So Black Shirts and Reds is 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 really in many ways more about anti-communism and its problems than it is about communism itself, although it's about both. But and anti-communism can't really be fully understood without first understanding the primary tool through which anti-communist action is taken. And this tool is fascism. Fascism has a lot of definitions, each with their own situational usefulness. But for our purposes today, fascism is the capitalist's trump card. When the contradictions of capitalism begin to show themselves, when inequality grows and quality of life for the average worker decreases, support for left-wing ideologies like communism goes up. 
Fascism is the knife capitalists reach for to maintain their profits and privileges in the face of growing left-wing agitation. Discourse on fascism mostly serves to hide this fact, trading off between praising fascists for making the trains run on time and, once the greatest of atrocities have already been committed, scolding fascism as an irrational ideology of hate. A material analysis of fascism reveals the truth. Let's take the two most famous fascist governments in history, fascist Italy and Nazi Germany. In both nations, fascists rose to power in times of great economic strife and amid growing left-wing sentiment. In both nations, the fascists were funded heavily by big business owners and recruited from the smaller business-owning class, the petite bourgeoisie. Following Mussolini and Hitler's respective takeovers, their nations both took steps to reinforce divisions in the population. When we think of the Nazis, we think of racial hierarchies, gender hierarchies, and the oppression of LGBT individuals. But less often are we instructed to look at class divisions, which likewise saw themselves reinforced and augmented by fascist rule. From Parenti, quote, in both Italy in the 1920s and Germany in the 1930s, old industrial evils, thought to have passed permanently into history, re-emerged as the conditions of labor deteriorated precipitously. In the name of saving society from the Red Menace, unions and strikes were outlawed. Union property and farm cooperatives were confiscated and handed over to rich private owners. Minimum wage laws, overtime pay, and factory safety regulations were abolished. Speed-ups became commonplace. Dismissals or imprisonment awaited those workers who complained about unsafe or inhumane work conditions. Workers toiled longer hours for less pay. The already modest wages were severely cut, in Germany by 25 to 40 percent, in Italy by 50 percent. In Italy, child labor was reintroduced, unquote. This is, this is so weird. Mark, how, how could this be? Socialism is literally in the name National Socialism. This, this doesn't make any, any sense. I can't think critically about this, and you, you can't prove otherwise. Far from earning criticism, these developments were celebrated in the American press. John Broich, in an article for Smithsonian Magazine from 2016, says, quote, Papers ranging from the New York Tribune to the Cleveland Plain Dealer to the Chicago Tribune credit it with saving Italy from the far left and revitalizing its economy. From their perspective, the post-World War I surge of anti-capitalism in Europe was a vastly worse threat than fascism. Ironically, while the media acknowledged that fascism was a new experiment, papers like the New York Times commonly credited it with returning turbulent Italy to what it called normalcy, unquote. Which, you know, that's something to think about. Of course... nugget to take home. Of course, opinions towards the fascist regimes of Europe did sour, but only after the growing Axis powers began to threaten U.S. corporate interests. Once the war was over, and the threat of fascism against U.S. interests neutralized, the friendly disposition resumed. In fact, efforts towards denazification in the former fascist nations now under NATO control were largely non-existent. The Nuremberg trials saw the execution and imprisonment of a few high-ranking fascists, but a far greater number of fascists and collaborators were allowed to go free and even maintain their positions of power. Within a couple of years, conspiracy theories about the trials being Jewish plots were already popular among German conservatives. At the same time, the partisans who'd been resisting fascist rule in Italy for many years were criminalized and persecuted, often by the same people who'd done so under Mussolini. I would also be remiss not to point out that examples of the friendliness towards fascism by capitalists can be seen in the U.S. right now, where police now regularly team up with and help fascist groups like the Proud Boys and Patriot Prayer to fight against left-wing protest movements like BLM under the guise of protecting property and maintaining law and order. So there's your modern-day reference. 
from the text. Obviously, Parenti doesn't talk about BLM in a book from 1997. Criticisms of revolution generally involve the statement of some evil perpetrated by a communist regime that's then left to hang there. Communist crimes tend to be stated in a vacuum because the purpose is to pathologize communists as uniquely evil, uniquely violent. As the great Marxist thinker Joseph Biden famously said, quote, Don't compare me to the Almighty, compare me to the alternative, Jack. Unquote. But the alternative is often left out of the conversation. Fidel Castro has been the subject of heavy criticism in the West, labeled as undemocratic and violent, and the implication is that there was some path Cuba could have taken that was free of death and tyranny. The reality is that Castro's revolution took power from the U.S.-backed Batista regime, which was as violent and oppressive as they come. What of Batista's violence? Would it have been the more moral option to simply let an, op an oppressive regime go on? Can we argue that violence invalidates one regime while implicitly endorsing the violence that would have been needed to keep the old regime in power? No. No, we can't. <laughs> 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 thank you for thank you for filling in that not obvious blank mark. I appreciate that. Vietnam is another example. We labeled the Vietnamese communists as seeking to destroy the freedom of the Vietnamese people, but what freedom? Vietnam was a French colony before the revolution. In the struggle for its independence, the lion's share of the violence was inflicted on the Vietnamese people by the French, and then the Americans and their allies. More bombs were dropped on just three Southeast Asian countries in that conflict than were dropped by all participants during the Second World War combined, and we still left Vietnam under communist control. Why? Because Vietnam chose communism. The Vietnamese people f died in the millions to protect their revolution. All in all, the communist regimes that took hold over many nations throughout the 20th century were often preferable to those that came before. This is true in the reverse as well. The U.S. has replaced countless left-wing leaders in Latin America with right-wingers to protect freedom or whatever. And what happens? Well, the new leader is usually installed by a coup, which is undemocratic on its face, and often the leader who is replaced is democratically elected one. This was the case in Chile in 1973, when U.S.-trained troops replaced democratically elected President Salvador Allende with General Augusto Pinochet. Did Pinochet make the Chilean people freer and more prosperous? God, no. He sold off Chilean resources to foreign corporations at bargain prices, making all of them a shitload of money, and then he jailed, tortured, and killed tens of thousands to maintain his power while he did it. I mean, they were pretty free as they were falling from a helicopter, but <laughs> free. arguably for a much shorter time. I'm sorry. God, Pinochet stands are actually are actually the worst people on the Dude, internet. Okay. It goes it goes you... Pinochet stands and then and then people who still say Rhodesia in 2020. Okay. Okay, we we listened to the same podcast episode about Rhodesia recently. Wait, what are we talking our, about? Our, what are you talking bastards. about? They just did an episode on the guy whose like namesake is why Rhodesia was ever called Rhodesia. Oh, is that Cecil Rhodes? See, that's Cecil. You know what's Rhodes. funny? I haven't listened to that yet. You, I it's just, a doozy. I just, I just, it's a my, doozy. my, the reason why I can't stand the Rhodesia booze, I mean, apart from the fact that they're basically Nazis, is, is that I keep getting recommended, is because like I, I watch like history content and we know how shitty the YouTube algorithm can be. And so I get like, I get like combat footage from like the Bush War videos or like that one scene from Blood Diamond where, where Leonardo DiCaprio says Rhodesia and then Jennifer Connelly 
is like don't we say zimbabwe now and then all the comments are like fuck people who think black people should have rights because they're stupid and i'm like wow youtube has no idea where it should be sending me it's not here (laughs) speaking of where we went do you remember in where we went to college the conservative newspaper published an article about how all gay people do is fuck each other and spread AIDS under no. the pseudonym Pinochet. Wait, what? No, I, I shared don't remember it on that Facebook. happening. I'll, I'll send you the link after this. Uh, I was fact, t- if it's still up, it was a big controversy. I don't know how you didn't know about it. It was like, <laughs> like Pino was the first name and Shay was the last name. And at the time, I was still like, what I'm going to call a recovering libertarian. <laughs> I remember I remember when we first met. Or it was like... It was, Dude, it was, you've it was already done this. We first met, We've already it, been over this. During the, during the 2016 Democratic primary, you said that you, that you were a libertarian and you wanted everyone to just like compete in a fair, in a fair arena of like economics, but that you liked Bernie Sanders because he would set everyone to zero first and then we could all compete in like a fair arena. I do remember you saying that. Okay, okay. But that's in that's that, actually, in that's that, actually within not the worst that school of for a thought, I was still because... I was still saying like wealth equality. Exactly. Okay. You were st- you were still recognizing that the system we live in today is not a meritocracy, which is important because my, most my libertarians mind don't was care developing, okay? That it's not a and meritocracy. It, most libertarians l- implicitly understand that it isn't and want to keep it that way. So the fact that like the fact that you cared about that is is why eventually I think you came around to having socially acceptable political views. Yeah. Then I realized wage theft, theft was a thing, and I was like, <laughs> "Why was I ever? Dude, why was I ever? Uh, um, why did I ever listen to Gary Johnson as a dude? Wage theft is actually person. the far and away the most common form of theft in the United States. No, it's it's so it's so normalized too." Um, a very large accounting firm has recently, um, and th- this is this is from people of my friends who work there. Um, an unnamed um, top, probably five accounting firm in the U.S. has now discontinued uh, paid time off. What? There is Wait, no is more that legal? paid time off. No, it it is legal. You know why? Because you can take vacation whenever you want to. But you don't Technically. get paid. No, 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 no. You get paid for that vacation. But there's always going to be someone else who's not taking that paid vacation. And if someone's on the chopping block, it's oh, going to be the person God. who's taking vacation. So that no is... one is ever going to take vacation. Yeah, that's how that's how crunch works at, at game developers, too, where it's like, you don't oh. have to stay. But... <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. It hurts so bad to, like think this is like completely legal and like yes. pe- people are just getting fucked it's, over it's especially especially during rona we, we haven't we haven't talked about 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 the man whose name starts with v who will remain unnamed on this podcast just because he's too it's too much controversy but regardless of what you think of him he does have a really really good metaphor for like for like or like a good analogy for like voluntarism in the free market which is that if you end up if you end up, um, if you're in like a plane crash and you end up as one of two survivors on a desert island, and um, 
all that's there to eat is coconuts and you're like passed out for like a few hours before you wake up and by the time you wake up the other person has gathered all the coconuts and so because they've put their labor like like now they own all the coconuts and you and they're like you have to suck my dick if you want any of the coconuts and it's like is that a voluntary situation am i volunteering to suck their dick or am i being coerced <laughs> it's, a, it's a very good it's a very good gonna analogy. get over it really just forced to it suck dick for coconuts you can't what? make that less funny <laughs> okay okay <laughs> so now it's gonna now coming back into the script it's gonna sound like i, I don't know where i'm talking about um the 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 coup of 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 against Salvador Allende in Chile by the general Augusto Pinochet. And America's responsibility for crimes like this is laundered through a series of ideological assumptions. America has the right to dictate economic policy in other countries, to intervene on behalf of its national interests. The U.S. has a responsibility to help other countries maintain their stability and supports the advancement of the global poor as long as they don't use violent means. These assumptions have allowed the U.S. to portray invasions and coups as defensive and pro-democratic, even though each of them is absurd on its face. The U.S. does not have a right to dictate policy in other countries, and taking military action to do so constitutes an act of imperialism. The U.S. interests that are supposedly protected, the stability in foreign nations, are euphemisms for the profits of American corporations. And it's plainly false that the U.S. has any issue with violence. It employs plenty of its own violence and endorses violence against the left at every turn. Really, it's just when we fight for equality at the expense of profit that violence becomes a problem. Parenti recalls an instance of George Bush Sr. invoking the name of Martin Luther King Jr. to lecture Nelson Mandela on the virtues of nonviolence. And I'm not sure there's any image that more perfectly encapsulates the hypocrisy of capitalism in the face of human rights. Parenti is, is also... There... Yeah? I was going to ask if there's video evidence of this I'm, so I could watch I have it no after idea. the episode. I would thoroughly We could, we could try to find it. it. If, we find, if we find it, we'll link it in the description. I'll post it on Twitter after this episode is published. Hopefully, if I remember. So here's here's the thing Parenti is super famous for. He's highly critical of what he calls left anti-communism. And this is the tendency for lefties, particularly in America, to eschew all support for and association with the communist regimes of the 20th century, particularly the Soviet Union. And I want to be fair to left anti-communists here, mainly because depending on your definition, I actually might count myself among you. The Soviet Union is a bit of a hard sell, and not just because of Western propaganda. Mass starvation, the suppression of dissidents, and general inefficiency in the production and distribution of necessary goods have all been exaggerated and removed from their proper contexts. But the fact remains that these things did happen, and the suffering associated with them is real. Parenti dedicates a full chapter of Black Shirts and Reds to good faith criticism of the Soviet Union, and we'll talk about that in a second. But first, we're going to run through his main criticisms of leftists who denounce the communist regimes. And yes, Alex. All right. So really quick. Yeah. Before we like totally move on. Yeah. You say you keep talking about this left anti-communism. Is that I'm, I'm like reminded of those like three arrows surrounded by a circle. Yes, that's exactly like, correct. It's like an iron front. The or iron something front. Like yeah. That? Yeah. Is, is that the kind of like political leaning that that is exactly what he's talking about yes that kind of thing so like we're talking about so validating in the nail right like like this vosh vosh is a great example of a left anti-communist in that like in that like 
if someone like brings up the soviet union like he'll go like yeah fuck the soviet union like i don't give a shit like i don't consider the soviet union to be something that like is based on the same ideals that like i hold and like this is mainly like an optics thing um because i've seen him talk in more detail like about like the soviet union but but it the fact that you're doing it for optics is is still part of the problem wait i, I feel According like the, parenti, okay not what? not to like talk about parenti at all or like anti-communism or anything but i feel like vosh the guy who we're talking about the guy who does like four-hour debates just yeah. wants to gloss over this for like optics i i kind of that, that seems kind of well he's all yeah i mean his his whole thing is optics that's like why he does mo- <laughs> three and a half hours of fucking optics well but yeah he's very he he talks about optics a lot god damn okay okay let's just move on we don't There's, have to get into it we, we i'm like uh i'm broadly speaking like we won't get into it you i'm more positive about him than you are but it's only because i'm a awesome piker stan so firstly parenti identifies a rank hypocrisy in leftists who consider the soviets to be beyond rehabilitation but who regularly align themselves with the democratic party as a necessary compromise in parenti's words quote Left anti-communists find any association with communist organizations morally unacceptable because of the crimes of communism. Yet many of them are themselves associated with the Democratic Party in this country, referring to the United States, either as voters or as members, apparently unconcerned about the morally unacceptable political crimes committed by leaders of that organization. Under one or another Democratic administration, 120,000 Japanese Americans were torn from their homes and livelihoods and thrown into detention camps. Atomic bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki with an enormous loss of innocent life. The FBI was given authority to infiltrate political groups. The Smith Act was used to imprison leaders of the Trotskyist Socialist Workers' Party and later on leaders of the Communist Party for their political beliefs. Detention camps were established to round up political dissidents in the event of a national emergency. During the late 1940s and 1950s, 8,000 federal workers were purged from the government because of their political associations and views, with thousands more in all walks of life witch-hunted out of their careers. The Neutrality Act was used to impose an embargo on the Spanish Republic that worked in favor of Franco's fascist legions, homicidal counterinsurgency programs were initiated in various third world countries, and the Vietnam War was pursued and escalated. And for the better part of a century, the congressional leadership of the Democratic Party protected racial segregation and stymied all anti-lynching and fair employment bills, unquote. I don't think Parenti is saying that tactical alliances with liberal capitalist organizations should never occur. I think he's arguing that to allow for a tactical alliance with capitalists, but not with communists, even when both are guilty of heinous crimes, represents a concession to capitalism, which is ultimately what leftists should work to avoid. A common argument that I hear from leftists who fully denounce the Soviet Union is that it's bad optics. There's obvious validity to this, but I'm always skeptical of optics-based arguments. Choosing not to advocate your beliefs because you think people already disagree with them is just admitting defeat. And when optics precludes us from advocating the ideas at the very center of our ideology, then we cease to be a political movement at all. I'm not arguing that we shouldn't criticize or even denounce the Soviet Union, just that I find the optics angle pretty unconvincing. Criticism should be based on facts and convictions, not on the misconceptions we assume others believe in. This sounds like a real Ben Shibino argument right here. We're going to take apart the Soviet Union and make it um, 
beautiful with facts and logic. <laughs> Another trend in left anti-communism that Parenti identifies is the tendency to deny that the Soviet bloc ever represented any true form of socialism. They argue that because the workers didn't directly and democratically control the means of production, that the Soviet Union was nothing more than a state capitalist enterprise. Parenti's response is that the Soviet Union and the various authoritarian communist regimes of the 20th century are the result of a survivor bias. An undeniable fact about installing socialism is that it's a massive challenge. By design, communism makes powerful people scared of you and hate you, and it's widely understood by leftists of all stripes that no socialist program is complete without a plan for withstanding attacks from foreign powers and internal reaction. What left anti-communists are doing is denouncing the only examples of socialist revolutions that have actually managed to hold the line for some period of time. Take Stalin's five-year plans, for example. These efforts took the Soviet Union from an agrarian backwater to an industrial powerhouse in the span of a couple decades at incredible cost to human life. Parenti frames this choice on the Soviets' part as breaking a few million eggs to make a really big and important omelette. Taken by itself, this undertaking looks like a massive waste of human life, done purely to fuel Stalin's megalomania. But let's put it in the context of the rising threats to the Soviet Union's existence. At the very beginning of the Soviet project, before the Civil War was even over, the Reds saw themselves invaded by a coalition of 14 nations, including all of the major allied powers of World War I. That the Soviet Union would need to be highly industrialized and internally free of division just to stay alive in the presence of so many enemies was taken as fact, and this assumption turned out to be correct. When the Nazis invaded, the Soviet Union was ultimately able to push them back and win because of the decisions Stalin had made in years prior. And other factors, of course. I'm not just saying it was just Stalin's decisions, but without that industrialization effort, I don't think the Soviet Union would have been able to withstand, and I think that's a pretty self-evident um, point. Parenti is actually largely on board with most of the things the left anti-communists want in an ideal situation. The problem is that communists find themselves always in the worst of situations by design, by siding with the least powerful against the most powerful. Democratic socialists seem to do the best job of making life better for their people. Look at Evo Morales in Bolivia. But as we've also seen with this same example, that when socialist leaders decline the iron fist for themselves, someone else's iron fist often comes in to destroy them. As much as it makes me uncomfortable, I think Parenti has a point here. I often worry about the future of the left when I think about how it will react to new left-wing political projects. If the left were to make any significant progress in the U.S., for example, it would need to wield power and make difficult decisions, otherwise it'll just end up undermined at every turn. I'm not sure that many leftists have the stomach for that, and that worries me because the forces of reaction very much do have the stomach for it, and an insatiable hunger, even. Mark, I feel kind of dirty right now. You're kind of making me feel like a bit of a tanky here. In a very good way. Well, t <laughs> tankies are... I, I, don't, I don't think that... Um, having a balanced view of the Soviet Union makes you a tanky. I think a tanky is someone. I think I think you become a tanky when you when you start employing conspiratorial thinking. When my my rule about calling something Western propaganda is that you actually have to be able to demonstrate how it's wrong, at, you, you know, and stuff like that. Because like a lot of the times, I feel like there are people who just hear something bad about the Soviet Union and go, "Oh, well." You know, you can't trust the Western media. And it's like, we know we can't trust it because we find the problems with it. And in general, like, my opinion is that 
propaganda tends to be something that you can see through if you're looking for it, and it generally relies on people not really taking too hard of a look at it. So, mm-hmm. so on the whole, if it if you can't really find evidence that that a piece of information is like a lie is propaganda then i don't really think you have a leg to stand on calling it a lie or calling it just like pure ideology pure propaganda um just because it's convenient to your enemies just because it's convenient to the people that are saying it i don't think that's enough evidence and i think that i think that to me like a tanky is defined by that tendency to assume that anything that is convenient for the West is is Western propaganda and therefore a lie, and to also um, align yourself with anyone who is anti-U.S. regardless of who they are specifically, regardless yeah. of whether or not they have anything ideologically in common with you. That's that's the problem I kind of see with like um, DPRK stands. Yeah, like, like yes, yeah, exactly. Like I, I find it hard to find an unbiased view of the of of north korea it's 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 really hard but like anyone like like i'm sorry but like every every time like i there's like a first-hand account of it it's someone like risking their lives to get away from it like i i I can't i can't argue with that there's it's and, and they're obviously not this huge industrial um rich power so i yeah i and I'm like, kind of unconvinced. And the DPRK is another one of those fucking countries where it's like, wow, look at these really obvious problems that are there for everyone to see. And we could like just like could pretty much like denounce this country without having to like tell any kind of lies. And yet people still like tell lies and shit and like exaggerate like what is already or also like they like try to pathologize like kim jong-un like doing very obvious things that you would that anyone would do in his position like trying to build nukes like of course he's trying to build nukes if he wasn't trying to build nukes we would have invaded and leveled the country by now if he doesn't if he like like why what resources does north korea have there's no way we would do that like like it's not ridiculous that he's paranoid about everyone in his government there's probably like a million fucking spies in his government and people waiting to take him down like because that's how we talk about north korea we talk about it like a country that it would be good to at any point take out their government so like i i don't i'm not like a north korea like proponent like or anything like that i just the way that people talk about it is so weird and so uninterested in like actually looking at it from a material and like practical perspective i feel like north korea is so much more valuable to i don't know the ruling u.s the ruling u.s class as um some kind of boogeyman pie in the sky scary country than taking it over and stripping it of any national natural resources or um uh, freedomizing it or whatever like they like they do to latin american countries but like there, there's, well, really, no, there's no there's nothing there for them there's really no, there's nothing to be gained really the big thing about uh like invading north korea would be like putting pressure on like china and russia's borders i think maybe really more china because it has a very small border with russia that's pretty far away from anything of use yeah um, no pun intended they're not gonna poke the bear but yeah, with russia it's like it's like they already have with china obviously it's like yeah north korea like i i wouldn't want to live there it sounds like a horrible place to live frankly 
uh, really happy I don't live there. And I, and I would like to see a political change there, obviously, uh, towards democratization, actual democratization, not like the fucking fake shit that we do in like Chile and in Bolivia. Um, like actual democratization and actual more worker control of like their environment, of like their workspace and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, like North Koreans have way more justification of being scared of the United States than we do of North Korea. Like North Korea is nothing to us. It is yeah. not a threat to us at all. I was looking up um, U.S. military budgets today with a $640 military budget and more bases in other countries than $640? What's up? $640 military budget? $640 billion. Did okay. I say billion? I don't know. I was confused, but over six hundred billion yeah, yeah. dollar military budget. Oh, only because Trump posted a video today of saying I inherited a military that was depleted and poor, <laughs> and then I looked up the military budget in twenty sixteen and it was five hundred and sixty billion or something yeah. like that. We could we could like deconstruct the way we that we talk about like the military and the empire and like and like our foreign policy, but honestly. We will never do it as well as citations needed, does it? They they do an amazing job. Oh my god, we are so fucking off topic now. We, and we're at this, we're, this episode has been going for so long. Do you know how do you know how long into the recording we are? Script? You know how long into the hour, recording we are? An hour, hour and twenty. 20. Yeah. Okay. We need Fuck. to get we need to get through the end of this episode. <laughs> I'm gonna cut out a lot of that North Korea conversation. <laughs> oh, please. Yeah, okay. we don't I don't need reactionaries in my DMs again. Yeah, yeah. So, so far, Parenti has been very charitable to the Soviet Union. So let's take a detour through some of the inherent structural flaws of the communist system that Parenti has identified. Across the board, the central planning of the Soviet economy created alternative problems on the other end. While it was really good for ensuring that the military needs of the nation were met, it often fell short when it came to meeting the needs of the citizens. The command economy was largely based on production quotas, which meant that workers were not incentivized to go beyond their basic requirements. This is, of course, a good thing in some respects. One of the problems of capitalism the communists identify is the tendency to overwork and overproduce, something that would be less likely when there's an upper limit on how much you will actually be rewarded for doing extra work. But in the Soviet Union, this resulted in widespread inefficiency. Resources that had their prices set low were often wasted. There was little incentive to explore new technologies. The whole structure of the command economy imbued managers and bureaucrats with power, which motivated them to keep things generally as they were when they could. Far from totalitarian, the Soviet economy suffered from a serious lack of oversight and control. These shortcomings paved the way for a romanticization of capitalism among the Soviet population, and particularly the intelligentsia. Capitalism is generally really good at showing you the stuff and sweeping the costs under the rug. According to Parenti, positive feelings towards capitalism increased at the tail end of the Soviet Union's existence because people thought they would get cool new luxury products, which is a fine thing to want, but they didn't realize that it would cost them all the benefits of the Soviet welfare state, the guaranteed housing, employment, and healthcare. Many had previously left the Soviet Union for the West and already discovered the nature of this trade-off. Quoting Parenti, Not everyone romanticized capitalism. Many of the Soviet and Eastern European emigres who had migrated to the United States during the 1970s and 1980s complained about this country's poor social services, crime, harsh work conditions, lack of communitarian spirit, vulgar electoral campaigns, inferior educational standards, and the astonishing ignorance that Americans had about history, which frustrates the shit out of me too. They discovered they could no longer leave their jobs during the day to go shopping. 
that their employers provided no company doctor when they fell ill on the job, that they were subject to severe reprimands when tardy, that they could not walk the streets and parks late at night without fear, that they might not be able to afford medical services for their family or college tuition for their children, and that they had no guarantee of a job and might experience unemployment at any time." Unquote. Chapters 6 and 7 of Black Shirts and Reds are entitled The Free Market Paradise Goes East, Parts 1 and 2. They describe the effects of the fall of the Soviet Union and subsequent spreading of capitalism to formerly communist nations, communists, I just did the JonTron thing, to the formerly <laughs> communist nations of Eastern Europe. There are a lot of exact numbers in the book itself, but honestly, it's not really that controversial, even amongst capitalists, to recognize that the transition from communism to capitalism in the East was an unmitigated disaster. Did the transition make people freer? Maybe if you were a business owner. If you were a worker, you were working longer hours for lower pay and actually had to deal with the risk of unemployment since you were no longer guaranteed a job by the state. Street crime, organized crime, unemployment, suicide, spousal abuse, all of these problems were significantly more widespread in the decade following the fall of the Soviet Union than in the decade preceding it. The rush of Western influence in the 90s is often credited with bringing democracy to the former communist nations, but did it? Sure, democratic institutions were allowed to exist when they produced the result the West wanted, but in Albania and Bulgaria, where the communists won in free and fair elections, they were beset by foreign interference and forced to resign. They were replaced undemocratically by conservative governments who then stripped the left of its political rights. In Russia itself, Boris Yeltsin took advantage of U.S. interference, killed demonstrators, and undermined democracy to take power, all for the purpose of expanding capitalist markets. And uh, we're about to finish up, but I do want to bring up a problem that I had with this book. In many ways, it really, really reminded me of how some of my least favorite kinds of Americans talk about American history. You know, the most famous atrocities are tacitly admitted to, but not fully reckoned with. Uh, they're, they're kind of explained away with, a moral, with moral relativism and deferment to material conditions. When Parenti addresses the Ukrainian famine, for example, he largely hand waves it with a statement about poor material conditions brought on by outside forces. And it just called to mind the way that the Bengal famine is hand waved by Churchill sycophants. On top of that, some atrocities that, what I, that I would have liked to see addressed, such as the destruction of the Aral Sea and the crushing of the Ukrainian anarchists, go without mention completely. Now, I, I get what Parenti is getting at, but I do have a discomfort with just admitting that a socialism that grants people economic freedom can't also grant political freedom without risking its very existence. To just give up on such a central aspect of the socialist ideal as impractical is, for me, an admission that socialism is itself a poor project to undertake. But that puts me in a tough spot, because what Parenti is talking about, the U.S. intervention, the forces of reaction, these are realities. So here's where I'm at. As leftists in the U.S. and in Canada and in the U.K. and in Germany, we have the power and the responsibility, maybe not the power, but we have the responsibility to resist our nation's tendencies to brutalize socialism abroad. The Vietnam War was not won purely through the military victories of the Vietnamese people. The war itself was politically untenable back home as well. If the American people can respond to their own country's imperialism at every turn in the same way we responded to the killing of George Floyd, then maybe the U.S. would have to weigh its options a bit more carefully. And maybe this political project can actually have some room to breathe. God, I would so love to protest with uh angry veterans 
against U.S. imperialism, <laughs> against never-ending oh. wars in the Middle East. I would love nothing more. Yeah. As a quick plug to something I have no financial it's... but only emotional interest in, if any of our listeners want to hear more about the Forever War from the perspective of veterans and West Point grad and a West Point graduate, I would listen to the podcast in its in its entirety, end to end. Um, Eyes Left by Mike Preisner and Spencer Rapone. They do a great job interviewing uh, former veterans and uh, just people who are involved in the war and. Um, really affected for the rest of their lives negatively as as a result of it yeah. unfortunately but it, it, it fucking incredible incredible yeah. sorry to go off yeah. on a tangent the the higher yeah yeah the 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 spectrum of workers to just like complete chud bootlickers goes soldiers mps and then just regular police yeah i i think i think the best um Remedy to anything here is being angry and staying angry. Oh, uh, oh, apathy. Yeah. What's up? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There, there was one thing that I wanted to bring up, which is that I actually I actually looked into some Pew polls, and 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 um, Parenti talks about how how immediately after the fall of the Soviet Union, people were really really positive about capitalism and democracy, and I actually looked at some poll Pew polls from 2011, which I'll link in the description as well, that show a really marked decrease in the faith in these institutions as the years have gone on. So I think that that's something to think about. But I'll 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 link I'll link that in the description. Are there specific institutions you're referring to? No, it's it's like it's US it's across government? a bunch of countries. It's like Latvia and hold on, I actually have it up somewhere. Um Do I? Is this the pew? Are these the pew polls? No. Bring that up on the screen, Jamie. <laughs> oh, no, no, I think I found it. I think I found it. Um, yes, pewresearch.org. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So approval of change to democracy and capitalism in Ukraine was 72% approval. In 2011, 35%. In Lithuania, 75% in 1991. 20, uh, 20 years later, that's 52%. And in Russia, 61% in 1991 to 50 in 2011. Uh, that's change to multi-party system as opposed to a single-party system. Change to market economy uh, is in an even worse state. Lithuania was um, 76%, now 45%. Or not now, 45, in 2011 was 45 uh, Ukraine was 52% in 91, 34 in 2011. And in Russia, 54 in 91 and 42 in 2011 so we're seeing decreases across the board um um and also in all three nations all three of those nations people generally believe that the changes since 1991 have predominantly benefited politicians um and then business owners and then uh relatively few people believe that ordinary people have benefited from the changes at 11 in ukraine 20 in lithuania 26 percent in russia so that's just a couple of polls. But there's a there's a bunch of interesting information and polls in this article, which I will link in the description, along with the Smithsonian Mag article that I quoted earlier. Perfect. All right. Do we... Did you have anything else you wanted to add? Fucking no. We've... You sure? We've gone off on so many tangents I know, here. Just... I don't know how... 
this is going to be edited down. The history episodes are always long, though. The history episodes are always That's true. Long. That's just yeah. how it is. Always sparks interesting discussion. Yeah. Can I plug real quick? Please, please do plug. Oh, my God. Okay. If if you have a Twitter, I would highly suggest following us at We Read Theory Pod. Um, I would also highly suggest DMing us. I would also suggest sending me uh, memes and validation saying, Alex, your tangents are funny. Your podcast is amazing. You're handsome, even though I've never seen your face. It's you're a beautiful man. We accept all of that. And if you want to spark a real discussion among fellow We Read Theory listeners, I would go to r slash We Read Theory pod on Reddit and 25 subscribers and counting and growing every day and not every day because we don't actually get a new subscriber every day because yeah, please, please. I mean, I mean, but please subscribe as an average. As an average, it's more than one new subscriber a day. The so fewer of you, yes. the fewer of you there are on the subreddit, the more likely it is that you'll get a long-winded answer from from me or Alex about a theory question that you ask. So, get him while the get him while it's hot because you know that is you guys true. Think, this episode was born out of a yeah, you guys think this small-time podcaster right? thing is going to last for us? No, 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 no. We are going straight to the top. We straight are going to the moon, baby. To the top. We are surpassing citations needed. We are surpassing BTB. We are surpassing Chapo Trap House. We are on our way to the fucking top. <laughs> yeah, even though we don't have a Patreon or anything or any sort of funding or ads or anything like that, <laughs> straight to the top, baby. Straight to the top, baby. Um, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go right past the Patreon and start um, a commune, and then um, and taxing really people. right after that a a coup, a coup. I'm we gonna are, I'm gonna I'm gonna going coup to take, the ATF. We are going I'm to take, take the guns over, that they've seized for myself. We are going to take over an area roughly equivalent to the size of New Hampshire, in the middle of the like kind of great lakes region and we're going to start a workers industrial republic uh subscribe (laughs) (laughs) please please like just reach out with questions comments concerns shit posting on r slash we read theory pod on reddit um Reach out to Mark on his cell phone at <laughs> three four seven. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh my god! All right. Do you hear? Do you hear I, the background I, I right do now? I hear that. It's okay. It's okay. It's all right, the outro. All right. All right. So, where I where I live, there's um, a large Jewish population, and they're Ooh, evangelizing by playing dance music Not out Cuomo. of an RV right now don't. and w- going around the block. It's don't incredible. tell don't tell de blasio don't tell de blasio is yeah. there like a, a noise he has a he has a long-standing bad relationship with the hasidim of new york city man i feel i feel bad for him because they seem like a pretty powerful entity right oh, now they're yeah. fucking lit outside my window right now dude dude yeah uh, um i um I, i'm not gonna get too specific but i have a i have a person who's important to me in my life who 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 uh, has at times lived in uh, a part of the city that has a lot of Hasidim and they party so much and so late and so often and it does actually seem very fun 
Yeah, yeah. That, that, I, I, I party. But I'm from a Reformed Jewish family, so Orthodox and Hasidic Jews are our natural enemies. And on that note, <laughs> if right, I don't I'm see good. you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Love you Get guys. the fuck out of here. <laughs> All right. I'm going to stop recording. Yeah, me too.